0: welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. On this episode, I speak with Professor Gregory Marcus, who's an electrophysiologist and world-renowned researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. And we discuss his specific interest of the relationship between alcohol and atrial fibrillation. We cover the idea of the holiday heart, we review some of the studies that kind of brought us to this point, and then ultimately we get into his most recent research looking at incidence AFib and the effect of acute alcohol consumption. We finish the podcast with a nice conversation about the protective effects of alcohol versus the problems with alcohol and atrial fibrillation. So I had a great conversation with Dr. Marcus. I hope you enjoyed this episode. With Dr. Gregory Marcus about alcohol and atrial fibrillation. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gregory Marcus. He is a professor of cardiology at the University of California, San Francisco. And he is really what a lot of people would think of as kind of the guru of figuring out the relationship between alcohol and AFib. And I think what's kind of funny is we're both up here in Northern California, wine country. He's in San Francisco. I'm in Napa Valley. So we're going to kind of take the gloves off and get into this and see what the association between alcohol and AFib is. So thank you so much for for joining us, Dr. Marcus.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. I think a lot of us have read about Holiday Heart, and I think that would probably be a decent way to start this conversation because I think it probably lays the background for some of the things, at least, I'd like to talk about with respect to why your more recent studies are so valuable to the field. Do you want to kind of start us off with kind of this whole Holiday Heart idea, kind of a generalization of what that data taught us and kind of how that's evolved to the current state of your research?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting to observe and also, thankfully, to be a part of this in that it's kind of come full circle recently. The whole idea that there might be some relationship between alcohol and AFib Was first brought to our attention really by patients who would note this observation that they, they would, when they, it was after they drank alcohol and apparently more in excess, that that would seem to trigger an atrial fibrillation episode. And that led to these early publications in the seventies and eighties that described this holiday heart syndrome, specifically that a acute episode of alcohol consumption would lead to a discrete atrial fibrillation episode. So then investigators, of course, wanted to see if this was true or not. And it kind of shifted that the research question, I think, was most amenable to uh, what could actually be investigated. And what ended up happening is that individuals would utilize large prospective cohorts, epidemiologic studies, and ended up looking at, okay, let's look at the people who tend to drink more or less and follow them over time as these prospective cohorts like cardiovascular health study, the Framingham Heart Study, et cetera, tend to do and see if they're at a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. And yes, indeed, that was shown in multiple cohorts, although not consistently in every cohort, interestingly. And that relationship seemed to be fairly linear. A common question is, well, is there a threshold effect? And and we might Get into that a bit. But to summarize that sort of epidemiologic search, the more people drank, the higher the risk of their AFib. Now, that's actually kind of a different research question than whether, you know, acutely there's a temporally sensitive relationship. But this observation was made. And of course, that is prone to confounding. So, and also relies almost exclusively on self report of alcohol consumption which may not be accurate, probably less accurate among those who drink more. So we published a study now a few years ago in the BMJ where we looked at alcohol access laws in the hope of inferring alcohol consumption without relying on self-report. And we leveraged the fact that in Texas, there are some counties that are quote dry, meaning they don't allow any alcohol uh, to be purchased, others that are wet, And the most interesting counties were those that switched over this time period during which we looked at all hospitalizations and and all AFib visits. And indeed, we found that when counties switched from dry to wet, the AFib events went up. And also that the wet counties, on average, after adjusting for confounders, there were more AFib visits per population compared to the dry counties. So we thought that was a nice way to perhaps infer causality from observational data. Then, not long ago, a group in Australia, Alex Voskaboynik, who we had the pleasure of having as a fellow for a little while with us at UCSF, and Peter Kistler, who is has been a longstanding contributor to EP in Australia, did a very clever, very important randomized trial where they took individuals with who already had a diagnosis of AFib they tended to be quite heavy drinkers, and they were randomly assigned to essentially advice to stop drinking versus continue doing what you've been doing. And they found a substantial reduction in the burden of AFib among those randomly assigned to stop drinking. So that was really very compelling evidence of a causal relationship. Then more recently, and this is the what I mentioned before about coming full circle, I remain very interested in this acute relationship. So we conducted a study. This was NIH-funded from an R01, where we enrolled individuals with an existing diagnosis of AFib, paroxysmal AFib. We gave them continuously recording EKG patches, specifically the Zeo patch. We had them wear alcohol sensors around their ankles we instructed them to push the button on the Zeo patch whenever they took a drink of alcohol. So this is the same button that we use clinically to identify when someone's having symptoms. The nice thing about it is it provides a timestamp. And so we told them, don't press the button for symptoms just whenever you have a drink of alcohol. And we told them what we mean by that is about a standard drink of a glass of wine you would have at a restaurant or a 12 ounce can or a bottle of beer or a shot of hard liquor. If you have two, press the button twice, three, three times, et cetera. And so we had that in real time. And then we also measured this substance called ethanol, which is kind of like a hemoglobin A1C for alcohol consumption. So it's highly specific. It's not made in the body in any other circumstance except after drinking or consuming ethanol. It's not super sensitive, but it's very specific. And it's thought to and been validated to show evidence of binge drinking. So more than three or four drinks in the past couple weeks, you might get a little signal with one or two drinks. And what we found was that the button presses, first of all, the number of button presses correlated very well with that that phosphatidyl ethanol. So that, that was validated internally. We also found that the button presses correlated very well with the alcohol sensor. In terms of relationships between acute alcohol consumption and discrete AFib events, we found that one drink essentially doubled the risk of an AFib episode happening within the subsequent four hours. And this was whether we used the button presses or whether we just used the alcohol sensor. So the more alcohol consumed, the higher that risk. So we think providing fairly compelling evidence that not only is a chronic consumption of alcohol, a risk factor for ultimately developing AFib but also that acute consumption can substantially heighten the risk for any given AFib episode.
0: Absolutely. And so do you want to get into those numbers a little bit more? So when you talk about both the overall risk, so you talk about two, two times for one drink, three and a half times for two drinks or more, and the timeline that found with respect to those?
1: Yeah, so you summarized, I think, the main points regarding the magnitude. So Once again, as with the epidemiologic findings, The results, they're not perfectly linear, but it is essentially the more you drink, the higher the risk. And it seems to be quite substantial, clinically relevant. In terms of the timing, so we kind of had to decide when we ran this analysis, which was a case crossover. So each one of the unique things and useful things about this particular cohort was because they had repeated episodes, they all served as their own controls. So we could look at, okay, let's look at an AFib episode. Did they drink recently? Okay. And then let's look at another day at the same time where they didn't have an episode. And let's look back at the same time. What are the odds that they were or weren't drinking? So we had to a priori select a time frame. And so we actually asked participants prior to their starting the study, when you have an episode that you know that of AFib that you attribute to alcohol, how long do you think that takes? before between drinking the alcohol and developing the AFib. And the median response was four hours. And so that was kind of our a priori point. We did do a separate analysis where we just looked at two-hour blocks. Look at used a two-hour window, four-hour window, six, eight, 10, 12. And the peak or the kind of the most common time frame that exhibited a relationship between alcohol consumption and AFib was interestingly four to six hours. So there does seem to be this delayed effect, which fits with what many of our patients tell us. Now, this is also related to two other studies that we recently published. There are some patients that will describe a more immediate relationship, although that may be different. So I have some patients, for example, and we have some evidence from some surveys we've done that some will describe just having a cold drink immediately triggers AFib. And I, my suspicion is, I don't have good data to back this up, that some people may have this sort of alcohol-induced AFib that is this more immediate effect that perhaps has to do with some esophageal irritation, stimulation, some sort of vagal relationship that just immediately triggers the AFib, which seems to be different than this alcohol relationship where more commonly patients will say, yep, I had a lot to drink and then I woke up with AFib, for example. So we also published a study relatively recently, which was really aimed at trying to understand the mechanism of this, why does this happen? And so we took patients undergoing AFib ablation procedure and we randomly assigned them to intravenous alcohol versus a double blind placebo infusion that was actually similar concentration, similar volume as the alcohol infusion. And we use this computerized pharmacokinetic model that's been developed by individuals at Indiana University and is used at the NIAA now. We have a collaborator who uses this a lot where we can titrate the blood alcohol concentration using serial breathalyzer measurements and then clamp it at a particular amount and particular to, to essentially to maintain that blood alcohol concentration. So we did a fairly comprehensive atrial, essentially EP study to characterize conduction times as a way to infer conduction velocity, as well as atrial effective refractory periods, both of which mechanistically may contribute to the likelihood that AFib would would initiate and maintain. So we did those studies and this was including catheters in the right atrium, the coronary sinus, we looked at the proximal and distal coronary sinus and the right upper pulmonary vein and left upper pulmonary vein, and then essentially the high right atrium near the crista terminalis. And then we started these infusions, clamped the alcohol group at 0.08% versus, again, just placebo. And so the anesthesiologist knew what was going on, but the operators were blinded. The people who did all the measurements were blinded. The research coordinators who were there knew what was happening. So if it was a placebo patient we had a script where they would check a breathalyzer and throw out a number. Oh, it's 0.02 now. Okay, let's change the infusion so that the operators were really truly blinded. Then once we hit either 0.08% or it had been a, a similar amount of time to achieve that in the placebo group, we repeated that EP study. And so there were a couple of interesting things that came out of this. The main positive finding was that the atrial effective refractory period fell significantly. So it became shorter in the pulmonary veins, specifically in the alcohol group, whereas we did not see that drop in the placebo group. And there are two things there that are both very consistent with the notion of an atria being more prone to fibrillate. So we know that a shorter refractory period, this is all per Mohs multiple wavelet hypothesis, is expected to render the atria more prone to fibrillate. And then we know from our experience in the EP lab and ablating AFib that the pulmonary veins are especially important in the initiation and perhaps per- perpetuation of AFib. So we thought that was very interesting. Now, the other thing we, in both groups, when they were done with that second EP study, was then try to induce AFib. And we did that with isoproteranol and rapid atrial pacing. Interestingly, we were unable to detect. A significant difference. I was very disappointed, frankly, to find that. But for some reason, we could find no difference in the ability to induce AFib between those two groups. And I think there are a couple of potential explanations. One is we were using too blunt of an instrument. So these are all paroxysmal AFib patients, and maybe just rapidly pacing them, giving them isopteranol, they're just going to go into AFib. And so it just wasn't precise enough to really look at this difference. Or, and these things are not mutually exclusive, maybe there are these delayed effects that are really critical for alcohol to ultimately lead to AFib. So, whether that's because the pulmonary vein AR, refractory period shortens, and that then enables more short coupled PACs to get out of there and, and really initiate AFib that's encountering now functional refractory, you know, functional heterogeneity, essentially, in refractoriness that leads to functional reentry. Maybe that's an explanation, and our mechanism of trying to get AFib going just didn't didn't fit with that. We would have loved to then follow them over time to see who developed more AFib spontaneously, but of course, by the nature of the study, they were all undergoing ablation. That's why they were were willing to do this, and most people, not surprisingly, were not willing to do it, and the operators were not super happy to have to wait through all this uh, stuff, and they were uh, my colleagues. At UCSF were super generous with their time, as well as the patients, of course, very appreciative of all of their contributions. But we think that that helped us mechanistically.
0: Understood. One thing I wanted to bring up with the catheter ablation, you know, there was a study that talked about how in folks who either were abstinent of, of alcohol, moderate use, or heavy use, and they went on to have catheter ablation, that they had a differential in their response to catheter ablation. And, and what I'm specifically talking about is there was a study that looked at so the abstainers were had freedom from recurrence about 80% of the time, moderate users about 70% of the time, and then heavy users about 35% of the time. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And honestly, that's not something that I personally, as a surgeon, will even talk about to patients during a clinic visit. I mean, we always talk about the initial success of the surgery of the ablation, you know, if they're coming from an EP, vice versa. But we rarely talk about lifestyle modification in terms of recurrence. Do you have any thoughts on kind of the recurrence of AFib after catheter ablation?
1: Yeah, a bunch of important points raised there. So one uh, that I should mention also in line with this question of mechanism and the nature of the studies that have been done, there may be another way or another mechanism via which chronic alcohol consumption leads to a greater propensity of AFib. And there have been now, to my knowledge, at least three studies to support this notion that chronic alcohol consumption may lead to adverse atrial remodeling, which then, and and that could be one, explanations for why there's subsequent, you know, more recurrence among those who drink more. So this has been done in a couple of ways. There were at least two studies that just looked at atrial voltage, which as your listeners probably know, is a very good correlate of fibrosis and found that among those undergoing ablation, the heavier drinkers tended to exhibit a lower voltage, indicating more atrial fibrosis. We did a study where we looked at serial echocardiograms in the Framingham heart study, as well as alcohol consumption, and then ultimately AFib, and found that those who drank more exhibited a greater enlargement of their left atrium prior to AFib. At least that's what we think. Of course they could have had the quite there's a remaining question that could explain these things in terms of a effect cause. So how do we know it's the people who drink more, have more AFib burden? That then leads to this remodeling that's been observed. In Framingham, as far as we could tell, the left atrial enlargement preceded the subsequent AFib and seemed to explain a substantial proportion of this chronic alcohol consumption AFib relationship, but we can't exclude that, that other possibility. So then one big, somewhat, I think still unanswered question that I commonly receive especially among my patients where I'm going to do an afib ablation is, well, if I have the AFib ablation, can I drink then? Is that okay? And that's, we don't know, is the honest answer. I'm always cautioning moderation at the very least, but that's a very interesting question. And, And this, our observation that maybe the acute relationship is mediated by some change in the pulmonary vein would suggest that, well, if you successfully isolate, isolate the pulmonary veins, That should take care of the problem if that's really what the underlying issue is. Again, that's yet to be determined. There was a paper that did suggest a higher recurrence rate among those who continue to drink. The question is, though, well, we know, let's say, AFib ablation on average is 70%
0: effective,
1: of those 30% who were kind of destined to fail or who just weren't amenable to AFib ablation, there could be differential there where maybe some of them, they just stopped drinking. They're going to do well because they stopped drinking. And then the those who continue to drink are going to more likely exhibit AFib. So we still don't know, okay, what about the people who really did have a successful ablation or were destined to have that successful ablation? So that's an active area of interest and investigation. And then coming back to kind of the broader point that you made about just even thinking about lifestyle factors and having that discussion with the patient. I do think that we are kind of in the midst of this major transition in the way we think about and talk about AFib with our patients. And I have to credit also Prash Sanders in Australia, who's kind of shown a light on this from the obesity, physical fitness side of things. In that case, meaning in general, in the general population, more physical fitness is better. I know that you know, there are some highly trained athletes that, and I think you've talked about this on your podcast before, that may be more prone to AFib, presumably a different, via a different mechanism, but certainly among the sedentary and the obese, getting in better shape, losing weight will probably help reduce their AFib burden. And now with this evidence that alcohol consumption really can have an effect. To me, it's very gratifying. And I think. Patients really appreciate these opportunities to do things that that are under their control, decisions they can make that can actually influence their disease. And, you know, I think we're in this way of thinking about AFib that is similar to how people were thinking about coronary disease 20, 30 years ago, that they started to realize, you know, stopping smoking and my diet and physical activity all make a difference. Whereas I think conventionally, people have thought about arrhythmias as just this completely probabilistic sort of thing. It either happens or it doesn't. And now we're starting to recognize actually lifestyle is really important, at least as far as AFib is concerned. We have to do some more work to to look at other arrhythmias. And it's almost certainly the case that there's a lot of heterogeneity. So there are some people, no matter what they do, they're going to have AFib, some strong gene that just increases their propensity. And some people that would only get AFib if they drank a lot of alcohol and then a lot of people somewhere in between.
0: Right. One of the things as far as lifestyle and alcohol in its relationship with AFib that I think we don't know yet, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and maybe you have the data from your last study when you had the Zeo patches. Do we have any calculation on if the amount of alcohol is related to the length of the AFib episode? And the reason I ask is just within the the context of the data, I spoke to Tommy Doolin, your colleague at UCSF. He provided us with a really nice conversation about how much AFib is enough. And he Mm -hmm. talked about Rod Passman's paper out of Northwestern. So do we have that sort of granular data from your studies that could shed light on, does alcohol not only relate to incidence AFib, but the length of the episode of the (laughs) AFib? We
1: have not yet examined that specifically. I mean, one study that was really important there is the Australian study published in the New England Journal, the randomized trial, where their primary endpoint was burden, where, of course, duration is so important. And that did provide compelling evidence that alcohol will lead to more, not just a greater number of episodes, but number plus time in AFib. We do have those data, so we could examine that. Another study we recently published, it was from the I-STOP AFib trial where individuals, this is a completely mobile app-based study where individuals could select a trigger to test. And this was not a priori focused on alcohol, but alcohol was the second most commonly selected trigger for testing. Caffeine was the most common selected for testing. And in brief, we found that In the per-protocol analysis, not the intention to treat, intention to treat, we didn't find anything statistically significant, but in the per-protocol, the only trigger that was associated with AFib was alcohol, interestingly. And there again, we actually have, we just haven't analyzed it yet. That was also, did they have AFib or not when they consumed alcohol, essentially the day, you know, that day or the day before. And we have data on duration, but haven't analyzed it. It's a great question. My suspicion is just because this does come to clinical attention that it does affect really truly sustained episodes, that it's not just a few seconds, because then we, you know, it would be too difficult to detect, I think.
0: Right. Now it'd be interesting to see what that data shakes out. You had brought this up just a few minutes ago. For a while, we, or even still, we think about alcohol as being protective for MIs and coronary disease. And now here we have data that's saying, okay, well, it might protect your coronary disease, but hey, you may you may have some incidence AFib from this. What, what is that conversation evolving to become with your patients right now? How do you navigate yeah. that? So it's very important
1: to emphasize that this question of a daily single drink, whether that is net beneficial or not. So I should mention, we published a study in Jack a few years ago where we looked at millions of people, really every hospitalization ER visit in California. And we followed people over multiple years and looked at alcohol abuse or alcohol use disorders as a predictor. And we were interested to look at AFib, but also MI and heart failure. And we found that those with alcohol use disorder actually not only had more AFib and heart failure, they also had more MIs. So it's important to to mention that more isn't necessarily better as far as coronary disease and myocardial infarctions. Now, the flip side is, well, what about, it? as you brought up, what about a daily, you know, single drink? And there was a recent publication also from investigators from Australia, Chris Wong, the, the last author in using UK biobank data that is unique in that it's so big. It has several hundred thousand people, but plus they're very well phenotyped so that they actually could look at what people reported drinking and this was the first study, to my knowledge, to show that a glass of red wine, just one on average per day, those who drank that actually did have a lower risk of AFib compared to those who didn't drink. And it's very those studies are unique to really look at one glass of wine per day. I actually just submitted with a, a colleague, Ken Mukamal, who is a real a world's expert in and really the health effects of alcohol. He's at Beth Israel in Boston. Recently, submitted a grant to PCORI, the patient-centered outcomes research institute, in the hope of testing the hypothesis by randomizing thousands of individuals, tens of thousands of individuals, using our digital research platform that we've called Eureka to either drink just one drink a day versus try not to drink or drink about no more than one a month. To look at this and really look at prospectively what really happens, because we don't know. All the data on, on these kind of an incident disease is really based on observational data which we all know is extremely prone to confounding and there's we've tried to argue equipoise there for the reasons you describe maybe there's less coronary disease mi maybe even less heart failure maybe there's more heart failure we just don't know and same with afib and even cancer for example we've proposed looking at all these outcomes There might be more breast and colon cancer, but there are also some evidence maybe there would be less lymphoma leukemia. So this question of the net benefit of a drink a day, we just don't know. I should also mention, especially as we're in Northern California, people often do consider the glass of red wine as really the healthy thing, and maybe that's true. But interestingly, much of the epidemiologic research suggests it doesn't really matter in terms of those health benefits, it's more about being drinking in moderation, not in excess and on a very, on a fairly regular basis. There's also quite compelling evidence that can reduce the risk for diabetes. And there was even a small randomized trial over about a year that, that supported, supported that. So yeah, this is definitely an area of great interest. Now, in terms of what I am telling my patients in clinic right now, I do think it's important to draw a distinction between those who have a diagnosis of AFib. Versus those that don't, and everything I've just said about equipoise, uncertainty, I tend to think about in terms of the folks without established AFib, and I'm just very honest and open about that. In terms of my patients with atrial fibrillation, I frame it in a couple of ways. Number one, there are some. It kind of depends on what their goals are and what what's important to their quality of life. So on one extreme, there are some people that would say, you know, I just want to do anything I can to avoid AFib. I don't really care about drinking. You know, what can I do, doc, to not have this? And then I will tell them, oh, you should avoid alcohol then. There are others that say, you know, I really enjoy having a glass of red wine with my dinner. That's important to me. And so then I feel like it's my job to help them kind of get there. And I will tell them, you know, that might increase your risk for AFib but I'm happy to do what I can with either antiarrhythmic drugs or catheter ablation so that you can enjoy that. I certainly always caution against excess going beyond one to two drinks in 24 hours. And again, you know, I, as we talked about, I, I don't know what the effects of catheter ablation are, nor can I be super confident, although I was going to say about low amounts of alcohol and, and, and AFib, although in our recent study, and there's some other studies as well, to suggest that once one has a fit that it may it probably it may only take one drink to enhance the risk for a
0: recurrence. Okay. So I just kind of want to summarize that not only just for myself but maybe the listener. So for somebody like in your studies who's had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation with a diagnosis, your studies have shown that in the acute consumption of alcohol several hours later, probably in that 4 to 6 hour range, they will more likely have an incident of their paroxysmal AFib. How that ultimately relates to an outcome, whether it's stroke, whether it's heart failure, we don't know. We just don't have that data. The episode length, we don't have that data quite yet. But for the patient who does not have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, alcohol consumption, maybe one drink a day, may ultimately lead to less AFib risk. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I'm less... um... (laughs) Sanguine on that one. So I I would say we for I would favor framing it in terms of overall health, the benefits versus risks of one drink a day. And so I feel comfortable applying that to those without AFib. Of the things that, you know, when we think about, okay, what are the potential harmful effects of regular alcohol consumption? I, I think AFib is probably at the top of the list, but it's important to recognize, obviously. Much as many of us would like to believe, there are other things in, the, in life other than AFib. And so there are other harms that may be better avoided. So I would, yeah, I would phrase that in terms of overall health.
0: I wanted to finish this episode with what's on the horizon, but I think you've answered that. Sounds like you have a few other studies cooking and, and maybe some more data to analyze, to share with us some more results. Is there anything else you want to leave the listener with respect to alcohol and, and AFib and the relationships that you've been able to uncover?
1: I think, again, just emphasizing this heterogeneity and understanding that on the one hand, it can be a little frustrating, I think, because people want clear, consistent advice that can be applied universally. But the reality is AFib by its nature is heterogeneous and almost certainly a final common pathway of multiple mechanisms. So it is, we do need to take this on a case by case basis. I would say the one blanket recommendation that I think is fair to make and, and ho- hopefully will lead to more, most benefit is to certainly avoid alcoholic abuse or excessive alcohol consumption, which I would tend to define as more than two drinks in, in 24 hours. So no doubt would, it, would avoid that. But you know there may be some people out there, I'm sure there are, who have AFib that is not, triggered by alcohol and it's under good control, for example, on flaconide or they've had catheter ablation and they enjoy a glass of red wine once in a while. And that's fine. But again, for the, the folks that for whatever reason don't want to take medicines or undergo an ablation and are very interested in changing their lifestyle to minimize their risk, I think this is useful information and they should give alcohol abstinence a try and see if that can help reduce their risk.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Marcus. Thank you so much for your time. I think that's information that's so applicable to not only us providers, but so many of the patients out there. And hopefully we can start to share more of this data with our patients as we see them in clinic. So again, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.